Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Happy birthday to us. This week marks three years of the Red Box Podcast. That's why I took over the Times Opinion Podcast and put a new logo on it. Back in the first episode in February 2016, it was a different world in which we discussed, amongst other things, efforts to topple Jeremy Corbyn and a political realignment after the EU referendum. Nothing has changed, as they say. Since then, I'm pretty sure we're the only podcast to have brought you not just interviews of the likes of Tony Blair, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Hunt, Ruth Davidson, Amber Rudd, Ed Balls, Emily Thornberry, Angela Rayner and Nick Clegg, but also David Baddiel, Michael Dobbs, Al Murray, Andy Zaltzman, Nish Kumar, Rory Bremner and Jan Ravens. We've talked through questions like, what's the collective noun for spin doctors? How do you resign successfully? What do whips do? How did New Labour win? Why is PMQ so bad? Who's been the worst Prime Minister ever? Is Theresa May to blame for everything? Where are the toilets in number 10? What did Barack Obama think of Theresa May? Why do adults watch Marvel films? And can a donkey hold a flag in its hooves? Uh, we have a similarly varied lineup of topics this week with a classic Red Box podcast panel. Times columnist David Aronovich is worried about conspiracy theories. Red Box reporter Esther Weber wonders what Christopher Chope, sorry, Sir Christopher Chope is up to. But first, Anthony Wells, political director at polling firm YouGov, on what might happen in a snap election. For our latest YouGov poll, we've done an MRP model based on 40,000 respondents of what the result would be in an election tomorrow, suggesting the Conservatives could gain all of four seats. If anyone thinks an early election will solve the Brexit impasse, they're probably wrong. So Anthony, explain to people, explain to listeners, why, because we've talked on about polls a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, why your MRP modelling is different to the sort of normal polls that we get every month from, whether it's YouGov or Popular Swips or Smallway, the sort of headline voting attention. What's, what, why, why is this different and why might it be a bit more accurate? I'm not going to try and explain what it is since it's incredibly complicated. It's basically modelling what drives voting intention and then doing it 632 times. So you've got a call in every seat. Most polls are all about getting the voting intention shares and who's what percentage are going to vote Conservative and Labour and so on. The whole point of an MRP is to predict the seats. So you take, so instead of doing a thousand or so, which is a standard poll, there's a 40,000. And so then you look at what are young labour people doing in this sort of seat? And then you can probably guess what they might do in a similar sort of similar people might do in similar seats. Yeah, basically, you work out how the vote is driven by age and gender and education and past vote and EU ref vote and also the political situation in seats, i.e. how do young people vote if it's a Labour Lib Dem marginal? How do they vote if it's a Conservative Labour marginal? How do they vote if there's an incumbent MP and there isn't? 
and then you project it 632 times. And likelihood of turnout? Turnout is, it assumes largely the same turnout as last time, this one. So, which but I've always thought was slightly shaky, but last time it worked, so I'm yeah. not going to question it. <laughs> so, and, and crucially, you did this just before the uh, 2017 election, and everyone completely lost their minds uh, when it came out at the time, because it was about a week out from the June 2017 election, you were predicting or projecting a hung parliament. And everybody said, I'll eat my hats. There's absolutely no way you go are going to look ridiculous. They're going to be finished. And a week later. Lots of really bonkers things like Labour gaining Canterbury and Labour gaining Kensington. (laughs) I remember saying to David shortly before, it's yeah, I wouldn't pay too much attention to those ones. And (laughs) of course, they turned out to be right. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So um, what can we learn from this? this poll this time why why did you decide to rerun it now in particular um what what does it tell us well the reason we ran it is as you probably noticed pollsters haven't had the greatest of time over the last couple of years in terms of getting things right so when we've got this method in our back pocket we've run before that did get it right um we wanted to test it basically we know the method we're using for our normal polls is should show the same as the mrp model but when we were showing five point leads and other polls were showing labor and conservative neck and neck we thought let's double check let's you know pull the boat out and actually do the whole mrp thing and see if it shows roughly the same thing and it does and genuinely interestingly it shows that i mean obviously there's margin of error and whatever but the toys up a bit like you said it's four seats but labor losing 12 seats even allowing for a bit of incumbency because they picked up more seats last time, Ed? Well, yeah, and it's because they're losing some seats to the Lib Dems, losing some seats to the SNP. Basically, they're squeezed from, they're squeezed from every side. Um, uh, they do do better than you'd expect, just on a uniform swing. The Tories should have got a majority on that, an overall one. But Labour do better because they're contesting all the seats they first won in 2017, and they've got a new MP who's opening fates and turning up for things and so on. Esther, what do you make of it? Not that I'm inviting you to slag off uh, Anthony's excellent model, but... No, I remember clearly the 2017 poll and how everyone completely lost their head with that. <laughs> and this does kind of hammer home, I think, the thing that really scares a lot of people looking at the rumours of elections, which is that we could have this another huge, enormous, disruptive campaign and nothing would change, essentially, uh, which is, you know, Theresa May's favourite thing. <laughs> it would be true again. I suppose the, the crucial difference here, Anthony, is the last time you did it, it was in the middle and towards the end of an election campaign. And so what it was picking up was uh, support swinging behind Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party because they basically run a better campaign than the Tories, whereas we're not in that position at the moment. Yeah, it's not a prediction of what would happen at the end of an election campaign. It's a prediction of if there was an election tomorrow that miraculously hadn't had an election campaign. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That'd be quite well, nice, wouldn't it? Well, having an election. What it reminds you is maybe the, what we should just do is just have the poll. Yeah. yeah. And then elect and then elect our MPs on the basis of what the poll and that tells wouldn't us. put any pressure on me at all. <laughs> if we did if we did elections like the Tories did, you know, vote of no confidence in Theresa yeah. May, Graham Brady announced it, the morning it was all done by in time for the ten o'clock news. Well, exactly. That would be great. Yeah, it has positives. <laughs> 
Now, David, um, where do you stand on polls? I know that the editor never listens to this, so I'll have to say I'm not a great fan of leading stories with uh, opinion polls. But this is, as you both point out, a slightly different opinion poll, and it's bigger, and it has a slightly kind of what do we say? I mean. Yeah, its history is 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 slightly better, and it does something slightly different. I mean, remember very well, a week out from the last uh, election, we'd had your poll, and I wrote a piece saying um, that most of the polls seem to be predicated, uh, predicated a Tory victory on the back of a very low turnout by younger voters, and that I thought this campaign had been an absolute shocker from the point of view of trying to attract younger voters to a Conservative cause, fox hunting. I mean, but all the, but all of this, but all of it, and so on, um, uh, and that this would be no way to win an election it turned out it was no way to win an election but i just i didn't know it wasn't um uh, so it, it yeah it, it, it's interesting i mean the problem is we can we can all see a, a difficulty here which is the choices between parties that people increasingly don't like mm. um they don't like theresa may uh, quite often um uh, uh don't know wins the best prime minister poll. In fact, I think generally you know, these yeah. days does. And Corbyn is right the way down there. Um, you might have thought that. We, I mean, you can have a kind of fantasy. Suppose John Smith or Tony Blair were back leading the Labour Party in exactly the same circumstances, and you can fantasise about an opposition that would be twenty-five points up as the Tories kind of rip uh, uh, rip into each other. And we haven't got that. So what you've got in the poll seems to show is this appalling stasis, this <laughs> incapacity to break free from. Um, a, a kind of frozen position. Yeah, you mentioned that um, one of the things you factor in is how people voted in the referendum. And I wonder whether kind of you see any change in how that influences people this time compared to 2017, because it didn't boost the Lib Dems really then. And now it seems like possibly there's a bit of a shift there. It did make a difference last time in uh, the Tories lost pro-European seats yeah. and and gained some Levy seats. But this time round, it's not even that interesting. There's not even that amount of churn because it's already baked in. Yeah. Okay, Anthony, just before we move on, are you planning to sort of keep redoing this model or are you going to wait until there was, there's more talk of... 40,000 interviews a week? No, we're not doing <laughs> What I want to know is, did we pay for it all? <laughs> right, we'll no, we didn't. we didn't. <laughs> so it's a good deal from the Times' point deal. of view. <laughs> Subscribers, your money is being well spent. <laughs> Right, I'm sure we'll come back to polls and whether or not we, we should trust them or believe them or put them on the front page or not in future weeks. But let's move on um, to a story which is which has been bubbling away in the background um, and has risen up again in the past uh, week or so. Uh, this is David Aronovich on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Well, the motion of no confidence in Luciana Berger at her constituency Labour Party was withdrawn after a fair bit of pressure from the Labour leadership. Now it turns out that the CLP chair, Dr Alex Scott Samuel, was a regular guest on a conspiracist website which was part of the lunatic David Icke operation. There, among other things, he has talked about the power of the Rothschilds. This closeness to the world of bad woo is new to mainstream politics as far as I can see, and it's worrying. David, you've got um, history with uh, this this world, haven't you? You wrote a book on conspiracy theories. You, you know Mr Ike's back catalogue well. I do, I, I do. And the, th- the funny thing is that somebody like Ike was right... I, I, hard, I didn't really spend much time in, this, uh, in my book on conspiracy theories on the Ike-type conspiracy theory, because it was obviously bonkers. <laughs> and I spent most of my time dealing with those conspiracy theories, which were, had become more mainstream, you know, like the 9-11 conspiracy, which is pretty bonkers, uh, and so on, but which was sort of more widely held... And 
then going back a bit to the idea that Diana was offed by the Duke of Edinburgh and all, uh, uh, and those kind of things, to try and work out why people enjoyed them so much, wanted them so much, and what kind of people deployed them. Um, so I didn't really bother with David Icke, because David Icke declared himself the Messiah, says that people, the world is run by reptilians, and uh, amongst other things, doesn't <laughs> like Jews at all, and thinks that the Rothschilds uh, run the world, like a lot of anti-Semites do. So when you discover that the chair of a Labour Party, a local Labour Party, which actually holds a seat, a safe a safe seat, um, has now gone to a man who regularly goes on the, a radio show associated, an online radio show associated with the David Icke operation, has, amongst other things, talked about the, the Rothschilds. Now, this is, I say this is a radio show, it's actually a website show. So at the moment where he begin, he talks about it, this show flashes up a series of uh, graphics from a site called Rensa.com, which is a well-known anti-Semitic site about the history of the cabal of the Rothschild banking. Now, this man, uh, Scott Samuel, must have known, if he was at all sentient, that this was what happened on the background of his uh, on the background of his uh, interview. Now, step back a little bit. When uh, the motion against uh, Luciana Berger was dropped. Jenny Formby also um, n- uh, nixed any investigation into Wavertree CLP, which was demanded by Tom Watson, the deputy leader, on the basis that, amongst other reasons, the chair of the CLP was a Jew. And Jenny Formby, of course, is the general secretary of the Labour Party. has come under a lot of pressure over her handling of this. We've had some new figures out this week, 700 complaints of anti-Semitism, of which 12 have led to... Uh, anyone suspension or yeah. expulsion and Labour MPs are saying actually there have been far more complaints than that uh, and so on I, obviously I can't evaluate that but that's what they say Esther you've written a lot about this and it's the anti-Semitism story is one that sort of bubbles up in the news and then just gets overtaken by the monster of misery that is trying to cover Brexit on a daily basis is this different this time round does the Luciana Berger row change things it um, feels like the leadership's more on the back foot than it has been in the past. Yeah, I think that's what I'd say. It seems like there is some real kind of anger coming, particularly from Tom Watson and um, and other high-profile figures within the movement um, who are saying this can't stand. And um, that does feel like a key change from the last time this was reading in the headlines and when it just seemed like there was so much foot dragging going on, uh, whether that manifested any type of satisfactory change in the way this is approached, we'll have to wait and see. And John McDonnell got a lot of criticism when he was interviewed about the Lisa Burgess thing and basically said, of course, um, there's one way she could stop this. She could She could back off criticising the leadership, essentially, um, as if this was all sort of in some way her fault. Well, if you look at the history, the tweet history and the uh, statement history of this guy who is the chair of Wavertree CLP, her CLP, you can quite clearly see that he opposes her on all this from A to Z. Uh, and not just a little bit, but actually as one of the key themes of his politi- of his political life. So the idea that that's all it is, is that she's kind of got to express solidarity with the Labour Party it is not true. But it does bring us to an important point. This, to me, is the casus belli which will take Labour, some Labour members out of the Labour Party. This is the, I mean, I was thinking about it. Um, I've held on to a Labour Party membership for some time now, but my wife said to me the other day, I don't want to pay any more money for this kind of stuff. 
Uh, I just don't want to. Um, why should we help? Uh, and actually, the case is to, to a large number of people is, is getting pretty unanswerable. Now, of course, that's pure anecdote, but I believe that there are a dozen or so Labour MPs for whom it's just too much now. Are you close to that point as well? Um, yeah, I, I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a day away. And how I'm a day away. No, this 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 that waiver tree CLP uh, thing is just remarkable. How does somebody like that hold down that job in a constituency Labour Party and get the support of people like the General Secretary of the Labour Party? It's unbelievable. And h- how long have you been in the Labour Party? Um, since George Galloway left. <laughs> <laughs> truly, Free truly. I, I mean, I don't. I, I, I'm like a lot of people. I'm a journalist. I'm slightly kind of double-edged about whether or not journalists should be yeah. members of political parties and so on. Some carry, like Danny Finkelstein, carry it off with great grace, including their membership of the House of Lords and so on, and manage it very well. Other people don't manage it so well because I there's think the you moment could carry you... off the House of Lords very well. Isn't <laughs> I thought more of a knighthood, really. But, you know, and, and given my communist background, an order of the British Empire. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, last week we had a piece from Luciana Berger written in the beginning of the week talking about how this was not the Labour Party she signed up for and she basically wasn't sure how much longer she could um, stand it. And I think we tweeted towards the end of the week it's been one of the best pieces that we'd best read pieces we'd run on Redbox last week. And I ended up stupidly spending my Friday night arguing with lunatics on Twitter <laughs> who all claimed to be, you know, lived in Wavertree themselves personally for 200 years and they just I just didn't understand that her constituents hate her. To which I pointed out, was that why she's doubled her majority since she's been there? I mean, oh no, that's all down to Jeremy Corbyn until I pointed out that actually the bulk of that increase happened in the 2015 election. So maybe it was all down to Ed Miliband and maybe he should become... Anyway, uh, that's a slight inside <laughs> to my, um, my Friday night. But the thing that also um, has kept coming up repeatedly, whenever I've written uh, either an email or column or tweeted or whatever saying, this, this anti-Semitism problem is outrageous. There's the, a the leader of the opposition who wants to be prime minister who refuses to to deal with this issue. There's a certain type of person who comes back and says, "Yeah, but look at the polls; people don't care." As if that is not a reason to keep talking about it. A is that the case? And B, do you think that actually concern about Jeremy Corbyn's reaction to it does feed into why his personal ratings are, are tumbling? People do care, but voting intention is really really sticky and people really want to be able to convince themselves to overlook stuff like you know so if you ask there's an awful lot of this is awful but it's more important we get the nhs sorted out it's more important we fight austerity it's more important we kick the tories out and so people will overlook an awful lot and people underestimate how much they will overlook david still got his labor membership card now but if you'd said a couple of years ago oh by the way if labor overlooked all of this and labor did this and there's all these anti-semitism accusations popping up would you rip your party would you rip your card up i think you'd have probably thought you'd have done it already yeah i mean the, if, if you look around the country there are labor mps who i think are really good they're probably the people who have the closest affinity there are other people in other parties as well but the best of the labor mps out there and some of the most thoughtful of the labor activists and labor councils and labor councils are people who you feel an affinity with you think do really good work under very difficult circumstances and so on and then you have to consider what the other parties are like really not so much the lib dems the problem there is in ineffectiveness but you know there's a you know there's that section of the tory party that 
likes to do Nazi salutes when it's on skiing holidays and so on. And I'm not really enamoured of that at all and uh, is sort of broadly anti-immigrant. I don't, uh, uh, that's not me. So you hold on thinking there'll come a moment when your vote might actually be useful in some kind of uh, uh, recrudescence, resurgence of uh, of the centre-left. And then there comes a point when you just think, no, well, I mean, that's going to happen after I'm dead uh, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay for this and so on. So yeah, I can understand people's feelings of loyalty to party. You've probably, I don't know how many times, Matt, gone through, will there be a new party? Under what circumstances can there be a new party? <laughs> we have done it a few times in the last three years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, 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 did a pro- I did a program for the BBC simply looking at the circumstances under which new parties arise. And the conclusion that the that everybody came to was that the much the easier thing to do is to take over an existing one, because new parties really are di- hard to do. You could see a breakaway of sort of semi-decent Labour MPs taking over the Lib Dems more effectively than sort of doing their own launch on a wooden pallet somewhere one afternoon. You know, and incidentally being resisted to every, to every point by existing Lib Dems. Yeah. Although, who also have their own Vi- Although Vince Cable is absolutely... He's like, come on, come on, anyone! Come <laughs> well, on I think, over the I waters, think I think you've spoken with considerably more animation than he has. <laughs> I've already turned down three requests to become leader of the Lib Dems. So where, where do we think all this ends up? Even if the Luciana Burgess thing subsides, does it blow up again somewhere else, Esther? I'm sure it will. I just can't see any... At the moment, I can't see any effective line being drawn under it. I live in hope, but, but not at the moment, no. Good, well, on that cheery note, in a moment, we'll turn our attention to the, to the slightly strange behaviour of Tory MPs instead. Uh, we'll be back <laughs> after this short break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley, joined in the studio by David Iwanovich, Anthony Wells, and this is Esther Weber. So yesterday, someone messaged me a picture of some plastic dinosaurs which have been left outside the office of Conservative MP Sir Christopher Job and they were left there by campaigners who are angry at what they call his prehistoric decision to block a bill 
that was proposed last week to give extra protection to children at risk of FGM, female genital mutilation. This isn't the first time he's had stuff left outside his door. Uh, The last time it was women's knickers because he had stood in the way of a bill outlawing a practice known as upskirting and I'm interested in why he blocks these bills. The level of anger that usually follows this kind of thing and where the government's responsibility lies in all this. Christopher Chope could open a shop soon if he keeps it. Maybe you should start doing that. You should start blocking certain bills. And before you know it, he'll have a whole range of knickknacks. Yeah. He could uh, sell it outside his door. So just to explain, um, if, dare I say it, there's a normal person who doesn't know what a backbench bill is and, and why it is that this man, Sir Christopher Chope, yeah. seem, is able to stop laws being passed. Right. So um, on Fridays, usually, uh, members are allowed to speak to and bring in private members' bills which don't have the backing of government. Without government support, it's very difficult for them to become law. Um, But because of the way the debate happens on a Friday, any MP can shout, object stop that bill from progressing any further. So Christopher has obviously gained some notoriety recently on this but I have to say he's not the only one so there used to be a little gang of uh, mostly Tory MPs uh, including everyone's other favourite Phil Davis um, and I have to say used to be one Jacob Rees-Mogg as well, who was part of this gang, um, and they commit themselves to uh, standing in the way of what they see as unnecessary extra legislation and state intervention. The interesting thing about that being Christopher Chope's defence is that he has quite a lot of these backbench bills himself. Yes, they generally seem to be about Christchurch council and, <laughs> and the local government arrangements there. What I've found through covering these bills as a parliament watcher is whatever the rights and wrongs of the current system, it is totally baffling to any casual observer <laughs> who looks and sees, hang on, there's a bill here that might protect kids from FGM and someone's objecting. And there are questions which I'm sure we'll get onto about how much the government is or isn't doing to help the situation. But I think that it remains so baffling that it's not an effective way of doing things you could, you, I mean, you could apply that to almost any way that they go about doing anything in Parliament. <laughs> yeah, is, yes. uh, is pretty baffling. Yeah. Um, D- David, this sort of slightly touches on as well. Where you've got the government, basically, they can't do any of their own legislation because if they brought in their own bill, somebody would amend it to put a line in saying "stop Brexit," <laughs> whatever it was about. So instead, and because they've not got a majority, they can't do anything anyway. So they've they've sort of found this route of allowing laws to go through. I think one that has been was successful in going through was on um, organ donation to make uh, that an opt out rather than opt in. So they've sort of found this way to do sort of nice what they consider uncontroversial things and uh, waving them through. And it's all and then the sort of the ugly corner of the Tory Party keeps popping up and stopping it happening. 
It's a peculiar one. I mean, the impulse, as I understood it, was to stop lots of legislation going through simply because MPs thought it was a good idea at the time, based on the idea that MPs are innate populists and given half the chance would be legislating, you know, absolutely every second of every day. And therefore you... But, but Christopher Chow, all he's doing is making use of a system that is daft. Yeah. Um, because there should be actually a procedural way in which people can vote themselves or it comes under some kind of uh, uh, scrutiny, as it would do, actually, if it pro- if it progressed. So there's a very simple uh, thing that you could do is stop the procedure. Private members' bills have been a source both of considerable irritation and some of the most momentous social legislation in the course of the, particularly of the 20th century. And what used to happen was the governments, when they weren't entirely sure that they could get away or they wanted to seek the kind of, the, the bad opinion of the electorate or their own voters or their own parties would allow people to do it. David Steele in the case of abortion, Sidney Silverman in the case of the abolition of capital punishment, see how it ran, let Parliament take the blame for it and then happily put the assist the legislation assist the legislation through so by and large where a private member's bill becomes law it's going to be because the government has given it a great deal of assistance and passage getting there so not much happens unless the governments do it now if we don't like what Christopher Chope is doing. The blame doesn't like with, particularly with Christopher Chope. He's just one, you know, rather eccentric and tedious person. Um, uh, and so on. And of if, many in Westminster. Well, one of many, and of many, you know, who give their opinions about lots of things yeah. that people may think listening to this podcast right now. Um, so if you don't like it, change the system. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people possibly found it a bit rich. We had Liz Trust Chief Secretary to the Treasury weighing in saying, if I see him around this week, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind or something to that effect. And it's like, well, it would actually be more effective if you, say, made some government time for this. Bill. Have a word, I don't know, yeah. with the Prime Minister. Say, yeah. I mean, Parliament is not busy. I mean, Parliament is particularly not busy next week. They've cancelled recess. <laughs> And they're not doing anything. Exactly. So, you know, maybe they could bring forward an anti-FGM bill. Just an idea. Just before I bring um, Anthony on this, Esther, because it's been a while since I've watched a Friday sitting live. Because I'm normally writing my uh, Saturday column for the time, so I don't want to be distracted by the television. But when I, particularly when I, I worked in the press gallery for PA and used to sit there every Friday morning, Every Friday, somebody would shout, I spy strangers. They still go through that rigmarole. <laughs> uh, that, that wasn't part of my... I also used to be a parliamentary reporter, <laughs> and um, there should be a survivor's crowd or something. It's basically this room, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think you should all be lifted out there after four years of this <laughs> yeah. and give and give and, and give a nice job. Yeah. But I spy strangers. Eric Forth, uh, another Tory oh. MP, was, was used to do this the every week. The um, the, uh, at the yeah. start of a Friday, just to eat up time, it was all about yeah. killing time. Um, you could stand up and shout, "I spy strangers," which was you triggered a process where Parliament could sit in private as if they were oh, going to yes. discuss some yeah, secret yeah. top yeah. secret legislation but to do that you had to have a vote so he just yes. so there then had to be a vote on whether or not they sat in private which yeah. they would always lose the vote but it had eaten up another 15 yeah. 20 minutes 
and sometimes they weren't quarrels, yes. and then that would upset the proceedings this is, as well. We really are in Nerdsville here. But my, um, <laughs> I was from the sort of 2010 onwards, and so it used to be a lot of Fridays, which just consisted of Jacob Rees-Mogg reading poetry, <laughs> if you can imagine that. To, to try and eat up time, yes, rather than to exactly. entertain a grateful no, nation. Um, Anthony, what do you make of all this? I have a tiny, it's very, very small, a tiny smidgen of sympathy with Christopher Chope here. There's absolutely hundreds of private members' bills that put up. I mean, they are, the ones he's objecting to is normally a huge list of 20 or 30 on a Friday, none of which have got debated at all. And so objecting to them all just going through on a knob because they sound nice is reasonable enough. But it's not. The system is the government's fault. There are proposals to put it right, to have the backbench business committee actually weed out and find the bills that have got widespread support and are well planned and give those guaranteed time. It's just... It's never been implemented. Some of this goes back to the big Burko debate, really, when the Speaker, I think, was forced to try and find a way through to discover what the House wanted through the very arcane procedures which had already, and, uh, and traditions uh, and precedents which had already been established and so on. And he was therefore essentially having to innovate in a system that really is sclerotic, ridiculously sclerotic. I mean, for me, it's ridiculous enough that they're, that, that they're actually spending all this money on that building in order to put Parliament back in it when it actually obviously <laughs> should move to a new building altogether. Uh, it's, say, it's ridiculous that they're having to have a debate about whether or not they have electronic voting and so on, and we've just created a system of proxy whereby somebody who's about to drop a baby within five minutes won't actually have to turn up in the house. I mean, this is 2019. Can you imagine how long it would take for them to make a decision on where we should move to <laughs> or uh, where Parliament should be instead? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> The killer argument. The killer argument. Let's not do anything because they'll take so long to do it. I and mean, it is. It is a killer well, that, argument. I mean, you know, of all the arguments against Brexit, surely that is the one that is currently oh. resonating. Um, the interesting thing about the building is that um, for a week now, uh, the entrance to Westminster Hall, the oldest bit of Parliament, has been shut because a great lump of masonry dropped off it. And I got in touch with the parliamentary authorities and said, you know, why is it shut? What happened? Is it true it nearly hit someone? And they came back and said, actually, I think you'll find it didn't nearly hit someone because it happened at the weekend. So it's fine. As long as the bits continue to fall off outside normal working hours, uh, we're all going to be absolutely fine. Um, I think that's all we've got time for, unfortunately, this week. We're off to eat birthday cake uh, to celebrate our third birthday. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Do post a review, uh, particularly on iTunes, because it helps us um, up the charts, uh, which are increasingly complicated. Uh, and subscribe to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box but now from david anthony esther and me matt jolly it's goodbye hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.